0: Life is full of important transitions. We are in the midst of one ourselves here. Um, But there are many others. When a minister says, I now pronounce you husband and wife, his very words create a husband and wife, a married couple which did not exist as such even an instant before that sentence was uttered. Their problems, however, will not vanish, and it may take them many years to live well together as husband and wife. The same can be said for a service of ordination or a service of installation, such as we celebrated here last Sunday evening. The actions of the presbytery make a man what he was not just moments before. The formerly installed or ordained minister of a local congregation. These are serious and substantial transitions, yet the man will struggle with all that he struggled with before the installation. Now these examples of life transitions teach us two things that I think will be helpful to keep in mind as we read and respond to our text this morning, which is the text from Ephesians chapter 2, the New Testament lesson. The first thing is, our state of affairs can change radically without us being able to identify a cathartic emotional experience to mark the transition. Now, you may have a cathartic emotional experience to mark the transition, but you might not. And secondly, it can take a long time, a long time for us to live out the reality of our new state. So what's important about our text is not that you figure out when this happened, though for some of you that might be easy, but rather that you are sure that you're on the right side of the great transition in this text and that you understand the implications of having undergone that transition, having passed from death to life. In this text, Ephesians 2, verses 1-10, through we're looking at the classic text for salvation by the free grace of God. A text which is about what I have called the great transition. The transition which dwarfs all other transitions. And we ought to cherish this passage of Scripture for in it we see clearly three things, and I'm going to make three points. First, we see our sinful condition. Then we see God's gracious salvation. And thirdly, we see the purpose of this grace. Our condition, God's intervening action, and then the purpose, the end. So first, our condition, which is really in verses 1 through 3 of the text. Here, the apostle is describing and quite vividly the condition of all men apart from Christ. And so it's vital that we grasp this, that we agree with this, because if a physician does not diagnose the disease properly, he's not going to prescribe the right cure. If we do not estimate the state of sin and death in misery in which men Apart from Christ, find themselves, then we will not glory in the magnificence of the gospel. Right? Without this, the cross just seems strange and bizarre and unnecessary. Paul's description here is comprehensive and it is grim. And you won't hear it anywhere else among the happy talk about human nature in our culture. Apart from Christ, he says, we were in verse 1, dead in transgressions and sins. Sin is deadly. It is a malady. It is a horror. It produces spiritual corpses. This is the state, the apostle asserts here, of all mankind apart from Christ. Right? The is not delineating the state of some evil subset of human beings. Some really bad pagans. This is everyone's condition and we are not, the text says, simply wounded. Or sick. We're spiritually dead. Cut off alienated from the life of God, which is the very essence of death. Certainly we live and we breathe and we move and we carry on with our lives, but spiritually we are dead. Dead men walking. deaf to the Word of God. Even the best of men are deaf to the Word of God, blind to His glory, mute when it comes to gratitude and praise. And so it's important to see that this death in trespasses and sins, is a state of affairs. It's a state of affairs. It's not a statement from the Apostle that apart from Christ, we commit sins. Though that is true. And it's not a statement that all unbelievers have morally equivalent behavior. That everyone is equally bad, as if we could draw no moral distinctions between men. That's not what's in view here. This is a statement that all lie in the state of death, under the guilt, under the power of sin. In a cemetery, everybody is dead, regardless of the differences and distinctions that might be drawn about their lives. Cemeteries are great democratic forces. Everybody is dead. The rich, the poor, the good, the bad. Everybody is in Ezekiel's valley of dry bones. So it is with all men outside of Christ. Whatever you might wish to say about human beings, honorable, dishonorable, wise, foolish, they all lie in this state of death. Dead in trespasses and sins. Paul elaborates on this in verses 2 and 3 where we see this state of death. As entailing a threefold bondage. The state of death entails a threefold bondage. The three great enemies of the Christian the world, the devil, and the flesh. These are the powers which hold men completely under their dark, destructive sway. First, notice in the text, the world. He says in verse 2 that you previously walked according to the course or you followed the ways of this world. It's important that we get some of Paul's terms defined properly. By world, he doesn't mean men and things, you know, rocks and rivers and human beings and the products of human culture. He doesn't mean men and things considered in themselves. The world means men and things, society ordered and organized against God, in rebellion to God. It's the natural course of fallen human culture. It's what Paul elsewhere calls the spirit of this age. You walked following the course of the world or the spirit of the age. And one of the remarkable things about us in our following the spirit of the age is our mass conformity. We followed, Paul says, the flow of the river. Dead fish do not swim against the current. You have to be alive to swim against the current. You have to be alive to oppose the world. Dead fish go with the flow. We went along with the crowd. We did what comes natural. And this, the apostle says, is lethal. This is a lethal conformity. For as Fulton Sheen once said, he who marries the spirit of this age will be a widower in the next age. Secondly, secondly, that's the world. Secondly, we followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. This is a frightening statement. We were under the dominion of Satan, here described as the prince of the power of the air. It is this demonic darkness which lies behind the seductive spirit of the age. Right, John tells us in his first epistle that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. We don't know how, we don't know the mechanism, but we know that satanic forces manipulate and delude men and are perversi- pervasively at work in the world. And it's important to remember we're not here discussing cases of dramatic, visible, demonic possession or vicious, irrational evil. This bondage to the prince of darkness is the natural state of affairs for sophisticated men, dignified men, men of good civic morality, as well as scoundrels and criminals. All men outside of Christ are under this dark bondage. And in the middle of verse 3, we see the third form of this bondage. First the world, then the devil, now the flesh. We conducted ourselves, Paul says, by gratifying the cravings of our flesh. Flesh is another one of those terms we need to take some care with. It includes the body. It includes this flesh, but it doesn't simply mean flesh. It means the whole human person. And so here it includes desires and thoughts. And the point is very clear. Both in body and in mind, we conducted ourselves according to the disordered desires of our fallen nature. That's our threefold bondage. And the result of it, you can see at the end of verse 3, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We all lived, not only in thrall to the world, under The principalities and powers, and according to our fallen nature, but we were objects, Paul says, of God's just, terrible wrath. And wrath is a divine perfection. We make no apologies for it. It is not arbitrary, it is not as if God just explodes or loses his patience or seeks revenge. His wrath is simply the good, pure, holy, serene, utterly constant, unyielding resistance of the gracious God to all evil and sin. That is divine wrath. It is His holy, serene, implacable opposition to evil. And we were under that wrath. This is the Holy Spirit's devastating picture of man in his lost estate. And our whole culture, all our inclinations, everything which forms us, rebel against this characterization. It's too sharp, it's too harsh, it's too drastic. Human corruption and liability to divine wrath are repugnant to us in our bondage. And so we're constantly trying to adjust and soften the picture. Thus, uh, it was once said that modern liberal theology can be described as holding to two truths. The first is that man is not so bad. And the second is, God is not so mad. It's wrong on both counts. Now this is the bleak backdrop, admittedly bleak, against which the glorious light of the gospel shines forth. And when you refuse to see man's state as desperately as scripture does, you're not in a position to see the free grace, the glory, the light, the necessity, the wonder of the cross. And that's what Paul comes to. Secondly, our great salvation This great transition is described beginning in verse 4. In contrast to our depravity, God is introduced here as the one who's intervened on our behalf, who has not left us to perish in our lost estate, but because of his great love for us. Paul is at a bit of a loss here. The great love with which he loved us, some translations say to express the love of God. It's great love. We who were objects of God's wrath were nonetheless in some ineffable way also at the same time objects of His even greater love. God is described here as rich in mercy, liberal and profuse. His mercy triumphs over His judgment. He intervenes into this bleak, black backdrop. And his active, conquering love was extended to us even when we were dead, the text says in our transgressions. Paul says in verse 5, and the result of the intervention is that we were made alive, raised, resurrected together with Christ. Now, this passage follows the text we looked at last week. And you might recall, last week, Paul prayed that we would be illumined, lit up, have the eyes of our heart enlightened in the knowledge of God. And one of the things he prayed for was he wanted us to grasp the exceeding greatness of his power towards you In Jesus Christ, a power which he said was displayed in Christ's resurrection, in his ascension, in his cosmic exaltation. That's what moves Paul into this passage. It's by that very same power that you have been quickened and made alive in Christ. And dead men do not contribute to their own resurrections. They do not exercise their free will to raise themselves out of the dust. There are no efficacious free will acts in cemeteries. The 19th century uh, English philosopher, Jeremy Bentham, he left his whole estate to a college hospital in London. And he did it on the condition, and this shows Bentham's dark, dark humor, he did it on the condition that his body be preserved and that it be placed in attendance at all future board meetings. <laughs> now, this was duly carried out for many, many years. It may even still be done. I mean, 20 years ago, it was still going on. This was carried out. They would dress him up in the, in the clothing of a 19th century English gentleman, fix up his mustache. They'd they take his corpse and they'd wheel him into the boardroom. And the chairman would say, Jeremy Bentham, present... But not voting. <laughs> uh, dead men do not actually attend board meetings, but this text says that you've been made alive in Christ. And, and it's fitting that right here, After describing this sovereign act of mercy and love and power, in spiritually raising us out of death and bondage, Paul says at the end of verse 5, he adds this phrase, By grace you have been saved. Pretty common phrase in our parlance. One that we get, I think, too cozy with. Now we can see that in this context, that salvation by grace means salvation by resurrection from the dead. Salvation by grace means salvation by resurrection from the dead. And he expands this, Paul does, into the famous words in verses 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. This whole arrangement of salvation by grace through faith is a divine gift. And if our salvation is by grace, then it is, in verse 9, Not of works. Grace and works, when it comes to salvation, stand in opposition to one another. If it is of grace, it cannot be of works. Again, there's no denial here. No denial that some unbelievers do more and better works than other unbelievers. The issue is that their works, no matter what the quantity, no matter what kind of works, cannot save to say they can is to, is to miss the fact that salvation is by free grace. And salvation by free grace means salvation by resurrection from the dead. So, let's describe the human situation which we looked at earlier. Like a plane which has crashed 500 miles offshore from any land. And the plane has three surviving swimmers on it. One is a novice beginner swimmer. One is a modest, normal, average, everyday swimmer. And one is an Olympic champion swimmer. The first swimmer drowns instantly. The second swimmer might swim a couple of miles and then drown. And the Olympian heroically swims for a day and a half and goes 50 miles, and then he or she drowns. But they all drown. Their works are not the same. Their skills are not the same. Their achievements are not the same. But they're all equally useless for salvation. And if we are saved apart from works, if we are saved by resurrection then there's no room for boasting. I mentioned this either last week or two weeks ago. It is, to me, one of the most disfiguring things about our tradition that Calvinists, especially young Calvinistic males, boast. There's a kind of arrogance that somebody doesn't understand the doctrines of grace the way we understand the doctrines of grace. How preposterous is this? If you're saved in this manner and you understand it, then there's no room for boasting in your achievements. Dead men don't boast about being raised to life. There's no boasting in the cemetery. But we're not only raised with Christ. Verse 6 says that you've been seated with Him in the heavenly realms. You thought you were seated right here but you're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And that means you've ascended with him and you've been enthroned with him. Now here, I want to return to something I said at the beginning because I think it's important to consider this great transition in the text in such a way that we avoid confusion. There's a journal, at least it was available a few years ago, I looked at it, a journal called, uh, fittingly called Transitions. And what the journal did was it chronicled the struggles of some 25 or 30 post-communist countries in Central Asia and Eastern Europe. Now think about these countries. They experienced an extraordinary, virtually miraculous deliverance in the fall of the Soviet Union in the late 1980s. Their deliverance was real, dramatic, objective, and palpable. They were free from Soviet political oppression. Almost in an instant. Yet in many places, it seemed like life with all of its problems and even some very new tough problems still went on as before. But the liberation from communism, in spite of what people think or feel on the ground, is a momentous, objective fact. And the point I want to make is this. You may not feel like you've undergone the dramatic transition from death to life in this text. But regardless of how you feel, if you are in Jesus Christ, you have in fact undergone this exact transition. You have been transferred from death to life. If you're sitting here this morning and your active trust is in Christ, then Paul has described your prior state and your being quickened to life. Nevertheless, of course, life remains difficult. Problems don't vanish And as I said, they can often get worse by converting to Christianity. And we wonder if we can hang on sometimes. But this little phrase about being seated with Christ points to something very different about our transition. Radically different from any human or cultural or national transition. The transition which Paul is describing from death to life is decisive. So much so that he says you're already exalted with him. This transition will produce transformation and glory. You are seated with, you reign with, and you shall reign with Christ. This is not a transition which God in his grace goes back on. And that brings us to the goal of this salvation. The goal. Verse 7 says, In the coming ages, God wants to show the incomparable Riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. I always feel that these sorts of statements in Paul strike modern American Christians as just ethereal, wispy, impractical. What's the goal? God wants to simply continue in limitless ages in the future to lavish his kindness upon his church in Jesus Christ. That's the goal. He raised us up, He seated us with Christ that He might pour grace on us now and through all eternity. We saw this last week where we said the church is God's inheritance. He delights to beautify it, and He's going to set it on display forever as a monument to His grace. God delights in His own grace, in displaying that grace, and that's the goal of your salvation. In fact, in verse 10, we are called the handiwork, the workmanship the public masterpiece of God. We've been, the text says, created, recreated in Christ, remade through this transition to do good works, which God has sovereignly prepared in advance for us to do. Right? So far are we from denying the need for good works. They are one of the great ends of our salvation in this text. They can't contribute to salvation, but we've been saved to do good works and to be zealous for them. We are saved by faith alone, but true faith never remains alone. Let me make two practical points in conclusion. First one is this. The stories, the narratives that we tell ourselves are very important. It's very important how you talk to yourself about yourself. Because a lot of us lie. Or we speak half-truths to ourselves. Or we let the culture tell us its stories. Everybody is telling themselves a story about their lives. Our story is the gospel enshrined in this text. And we have to preach this gospel with this past, this transition, and this goal. We have to preach this gospel to ourselves every day. We never outgrow the need for the gospel. Preach the gospel, this gospel, to yourselves every day. This means this is how you must estimate your past. There's a wonderful story about a, a, a very dignified judge. It comes, the story comes from England. He's a, he's a very dignified judge, and he would often see this rather um, rascally uh, criminal in court and sentence him to various sorts of uh, community service and, and various uh, short stints in jail. A number of years down the road, the judge was in church, and he ended up praying at the, at the prayer rail in front of the church, and next to him was this very same criminal who he had repeatedly seen in court. And the minister noticed it, and on, after the service, the minister was talking to the judge, who was a very prominent member of the community, and the judge said, did you see who I was praying with, praying next to today? And the minister said, yes, I did notice that. And the judge says, it's a marvelous testimony to God's grace. And the minister began to speak about the the criminal. But the judge was referring to himself. He said, it doesn't surprise me that he came to see his wretchedness. That he came to see that his past was bleak and dark. The amazing thing is that I, with my Oxford education, and my, and my refined manners and all my English sensibilities and my family pride and my social dignity and my, and my decency and my sense of morality, that I came to see the gospel, that I came to see my need, my pride, my uncleanness, my darkness. The minister was shocked. Do you believe this text about yourself? This is how you must estimate your past. Whether you're a convicted murderer or whether you're the most eminent, dignified human being in the county. This is how you must see your past. You must tell yourself the story and this great transition is, must be the thing which defines your present. And this status of being seated with Christ so that you might taste His kindness, that defines your glorious, limitless future. Tell yourself the right story, beloved. Tell yourself the right story. The second application here is simple. Take a look at your life. Your job, your family, your friends, your neighbors, community, your burdens, your opportunities, your gifts, all that stuff that's staring you in the face. What do you see? You should see good works prepared in advance, waiting for you to do them. It's not only that your salvation is predestined, it's that the good works are prepared and fashioned and shaped and brought right to you so you can do them. Zeal for good works is a sign of having undergone this great transition. God has saved us out of an unspeakable pit of darkness and death. He's raised us up with Christ so that we might, as His handiwork, do the works He's prepared for us. All of this so that He might show His grace and kindness to us in the unending ages to come. Praise God from whom all these blessings flow. Amen.